0: Hello my beautiful boons and welcome to the episode of today. So today I'm going to be talking about the low dopamine morning trend. This is a trend that got pretty popular last year on TikTok is the main one. And then there was all these blogs done about it and a lot of I've still seen a lot of things cropping up about this low dopamine morning trend. So I want to be talking about what your mornings should look like and I'm going to be talking about what it is that I don't agree with on the low dopamine morning trend. And what I do agree with, because there's, there's a lot of good that is spoken about in this trend, and then there's a lot of things that are just contradictive, counterintuitive, just doesn't make sense, and I completely don't agree with. So we're going to be going into that. We're going to be talking about that. Um, I also do recommend that after listening to this, if you're super interested, you then go and listen to, I will quote what episode it is, but my dopamine episode, which talks in depth about the neurochemical dopamine so you understand better how it works because I'm only going to brush over certain like really scientific things about dopamine in this episode. We do have a brain fact. The brain fact is all about barbiturates. Good times. They are a central nervous system depressant and then topic of today's episode and then I'm going to do a listener story at the end of today's episode. Uh, That is all. Let's get straight into the brain fact. Okay, so the brain fact of today is all about the sedatives in the barbiturate family group. Barbiturates, well, So what are they? Barbiturates are a class of drugs that are intended to treat insomnia and also seizures as well. Now these drugs are pretty easy to remember as far as drug name because the drugs end in barbitol. So for example, secobarbitol, There's all these other ones, but barbitol is like the the last bit of the drug name. If you listen to the Brain Fact, I want to say last week, um, I spoke about anti-epileptic drugs and how they act by binding to GABA receptors. Now, when you increase inhibition, then you raise the chances of sleepiness. So inhibition is GABA, it's the main inhibitory neurotransmitter. So when you're increasing inhibition, you're acting on these GABA receptors, you're pumping up the job of GABA, then you're lowering activity within the brain and then you're increasing the chances of like it's a sedative sleepiness. And that is what barbiturates do as one of things. And there's basically making less activity in the brain, slowing everything down. Barbiturates are a central nervous system depressant. Now, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but for those that haven't heard it yet, I'm going to quickly go into it again. But when you hear about a depressant, it's not referring to a mood state. A lot of people hear that alcohol is a depressant, so that's why you're depressed. Not at all. That's not the case. A lot of people drink alcohol and are absolutely like thrilled to be alive. So, What it actually means is that it is depressing your nervous system. So it might make you sad, but that has got to do with your life experiences and what you're experiencing at that moment. When people are drunk, they're either sad or happy or whatever, but it doesn't make you sad. Um, It can make you feel very relaxed Playful, the opposite of sad. A central nervous system depressant is anything that suppresses activity within the CNS, the central nervous system. So, alcohol, barbiturates, opioids, as opposed to a stimulant, such as like cocaine, coffee, speed, things like that. So, you look at the two uppers and downers, basically. So, you've got um, central nervous system depressants, they're going to sedate you. Anything that sedates you, alcohol, all those things. And then you've got stimulants, okay? So, barbiturates are a depressant, nothing to do with your mood. And taking too many depressants can be very lethal as it can cause something called respiratory depression, which is where there's not not enough activity within the parts of the brain that control breathing. And therefore you're not getting enough oxygen because it's slowing down. You're breathing too much. You're not getting enough oxygen. Your heart's not pumping as fast as it should be pumping and, or, or, or s- as strong as it could be pumping. And then this among other things can lead to loss of consciousness or death. Now there's a lot of central nervous system depressants, and that sounds really, really hectic, but not all central nervous system depressants have the same strength. So the reason for this is that sometimes a central nervous system can only, a depressant, sorry, a CNS depressant can only slow things down to an extent. And then that's kind of That's kind of what it does. It can only reach X percentage of receptors and then it's not going to do more than that. So not all CNS depressants have the same strength and this is dependent on the class of drug and it's also dependent on the dose. Now GABA receptors are found on chloride channels on neurons. So I've spoken about last week, I was talking about the gates that open and close on the surface of the cells that allow the influx of ions into the cell to change the concentration gradient of like negative charged to positively charged. That's all in last week's brain fact. But these channels have receptors on them, in this case GABA receptors. And when GABA binds to these receptors on the channels, the channels open, allowing negatively charged chloride ions to enter the cell. This hyperpolarizes the cell and therefore it lowers the chances of an action potential or it lowers the chances of the cell firing. Okay, that's what GABA does. Now, GABA is quite interesting because not, – not GABA, sorry. Barbiturates are quite interesting because they're dose-dependent. When you give a low dose, you have you can induce sleep, you can suppress seizures – When you have a high dose, it can work as an anesthetic and it has been used as an anesthetic in the past. But the dangerous thing about barbiturates is something called a no-sealing effect, which means that there's no limit to the amount of suppression to the central nervous system that barbiturates can cause, which is very dangerous and it's very unlike other drugs that do have a ceiling or a limit on its effects to the central nervous system. So this is what, what makes barbs so dangerous and why they're not often prescribed as there are much safer alternatives. You, I reckon that now you'd only be prescribed barbiturates if other treatments have failed and it would have to be in a very controlled, you know, environment how it's prescribed. Um. There is also with barbiturates a tolerance threshold. So a tolerance threshold means that you need more and more of that drug to achieve the same result every time. So somebody that's been using barbiturates over a long period of time is going to need to up that dosage more and more and more to get the same effect over someone who's using it for the first time. And this is actually the case with quite a few drugs that humans take, recreational or prescription. An alternative to barbiturates is benzodiazepines, which I've spoken about before on a brain fact. And, yeah, they're just really generally prescribed if other drugs have been found to be ineffective, uh, but they're just really not the first line of drugs used to treat seizures or insomnia whenever possible. They should not be combined with opioids or alcohol or any central nervous system depressant because if you are – You know, having a central nervous system depressant that might have a ceiling but it's still depressing your nervous system and then you go in and dump a barbiturate on top of that which has no ceiling and it's dose dependent so it depends how much of that dose you have. You could then cause severe problems including loss of consciousness or even death and to wrap it up, there are famous people that have died of barbiturate overdoses, and they are Judy Garland, Jimi Hendrix, Marilyn Monroe. They're the ones I found and heaps more as well. Um, And also, interestingly, the members of, if you guys have ever heard of the Heaven's Gate cult where this cult leader basically gave everyone within his group this lethal dose of something called phenobarbital and coupled it with alcohol which is also a central nervous system depressant, um, which, yeah, just aggressively depressed their CNS and they all died. So pretty fucked up, but that's the brain fact of today. Good times. Okay. So let's get right into the topic of today's episode, which is all about the low dopamine morning trend. So What is it and should you be aiming to have low levels of dopamine in the morning and does that even benefit you? So I'm going to talk about what is the good behind this trend and I'm going to talk about what I don't like it and I am going to talk about at the end what I would recommend you to do around dopamine levels in the morning. Now before I start, I want to say that there are things with this trend that I do agree with, quite a few things that I agree with. But there are certain things I don't agree with outright and there are certain things that the, what they're suggesting is good, but the reason behind it is actually wrong, how it's been explained in a lot of videos that I've watched mainly on TikTok and a lot of blog entries on like big publications, okay? So let's break it down in this episode. Firstly, dopamine has a bit of a bad rap in popular psychology. So do a few of other neurochemicals such as cortisol. But cortisol's for another day altogether. Um, but this idea of trying to lower dopamine, or what's commonly used, is detox from dopamine, is ultimately pretty ridiculous. And I'm going to explain why. I'm going to be talking about why aspects of this this trend is actually very healthy for you. And it says that this trend was started to help people with ADHD and how that's really helpful and how then a lot of people have jumped on the bandwagon of that, people who don't have ADD, but how they've also found it really helpful in their mornings. Um, so I'm going to be talking about the good and bad of it and what doesn't add up and what doesn't make sense and what does. Let's begin with dopamine. Dopamine, among doing a lot of things in your central nervous system and in your body, is heavily involved in reward-seeking behaviours. That's where it gets its bad rap because it's very closely linked with addictive behaviours. But it's also crucial for movement and it's crucial for the consolidation and formation of memories and then a whole bunch of other things that it does within your brain. And while it's true that certain behaviours and addictions will take over these pathways, spike your dopamine levels beyond what's natural, create this addictive loop where it feels like you've got little to no control, it's still not ideal or it's not a good idea to be going on a dopamine detox. Firstly, because it's not possible. Secondly, because dopamine actually helps you do so much within your day. It's not just there for addictive behaviours and for this high feeling, not even close. It's, It's crucial for alertness, for attention, for all sorts of things in your day, movement, everything, okay? Wakefulness. There's this belief that dopamine serves only to seek out the things we like and the brain is addicted to this rush that dopamine provides and then it seeks out these behaviours to get the dopamine rush again and again and it keeps us going back and back and back, which then becomes detrimental because we get all these addictions and then we can't focus in any other area of our lives. Now people online in these videos and blogs that I've like gone through so many recommend on this trend taking away altogether behaviours that will spike your dopamine. They say certain foods, the internet, the aim is to get rid of any excess dopamine so you can go back to living a normal life. Part of this is true. Limiting behaviours that are addictive is a good thing to do. But some people are recommending like a 24-hour detox. That 24 hours isn't going to do much at all. And dopamine alone... Is not fully responsible for addictive behaviors. There's so much more that goes into it. And trying to limit dopamine, as like, oh, this is the devil, this is the cause of it all, altogether, would hypothetically affect all other areas of your life as well, like executive control, your planning and motivation m- movement as well, all these things. So let's first talk about what is this low dopamine morning trend? What does it entail? So the suggestions are no phone usage in first thing in the morning. I love that. Um, to go outside, go into direct sunlight. Not have caffeine first thing in the morning when you wake up. Read a book. Basically, it's it's suggested that you have a slow morning, as to not have any high levels of dopamine and cortisol released. Everything's got to be slow. No stimul, low stimulant morning. No, like you're not working out. You're just cruising. All of the above. Now, doing all these things in the morning is fine. There's actually nothing wrong with everything they've suggested. No caffeine for the first start of the day, no phones getting in direct sunlight, you know, relaxing, all of that. Nothing wrong with that. That's great. And if that morning trend works for you, fantastic. What I'm here to talk about is the arguments behind that trend, which I absolutely do not agree with a lot of them. So a lot, another thing that's mentioned a lot is this is cortisol. So alongside dopamine – in all these blogs and videos that cortisol is mentioned as well. So I am going to tap into cortisol a little bit in this episode. What I disagree with is that people are saying that you need to start slow and that is going to be beneficial for you and exercise should not be done. If that is what you want and that is what you prefer, then good for you. But I don't like the idea that it's being recommended not to exercise in the morning because exercise Induces a spike in dopamine and cortisol, and that that's detrimental because it's absolutely not detrimental. It's actually very good for you. And if you want to know more about this, there's a lot of episodes on Huberman Lab um, who talks about the science behind the importance of exercise in the morning and that spike of cortisol and dopamine and why it's so good for you. Exercise induced dopamine, exercise induced dopamine release is very different to behavioral or chemical addiction-induced dopamine release. You cannot compare the two. Exercise-induced dopamine, or this release of dopamine when you exercise, raises your dopamine levels, stimulates wakefulness, alertness alongside other things, keeps them a bit higher for longer, stimulates a release of cortisol, Keeps those levels of uh, dopamine a little bit higher for longer. And then you return back down to a normal baseline, which then makes it easy for you to feel driven and motivated and have the ability to take action and do things and then get that slow rise in dopamine again. Instant gratification behaviors, however, like checking your phone repeatedly, does the opposite, So it it spikes your dopamine and then because it's a quick instant gratification, it spikes your dopamine and then your levels of dopamine drop below baseline, okay? And when it drops below your baseline, it makes it harder for you to feel motivated to work towards something where it's like a delayed gratification so then what do you do you seek another instant gratification and then another instant gratification and that's where this addictive loops with the phone checking and all of that happen and with you know drug use and whatever it is that you're seeking that feels rewarding and dopamine levels are essential for the feeling of motivation and drive but getting them in an instant gratification way is what's going to drop your dopamine below baseline and that's not the way to do it but To say that you need low dopamine in the morning, I would strongly disagree with. Because going by that argument of you need low dopamine in the morning, then my question would be, when then should you have high levels of dopamine, right? Because certainly not at night, because then that's going to keep you more alert. Then what in the middle? Like why the best time to have a good spike in dopamine and in cortisol is in the morning because that is when you need to be alert to kickstart your day, right? I fully agree that you shouldn't be engaging in addictive behaviours, but the trend should almost be called low instant gratification behaviour morning trend. That's what it should be called. It should have nothing to do with a low dopamine, okay? And this idea that you need low levels of dopamine in the morning is absurd, okay? Now, we are trying to – like, obviously, this trend – is trying to avoid spikes of dopamine that go up really quickly and then drop below baseline and leave you feeling more unmotivated. I'm guessing that's the point of the trend, which is great. And that pretty much is all addictive, instant gratification-like behavior. So that's drugs, impulse shopping, gambling, sex when it's more addiction-based sex, like sex addiction, um, phone usage, technology usage in general, social media, video games, those kinds of things. And for kids what's kind of looked into is like cartoons that change scenes every three seconds or less. So you'll notice that there are some cartoons that are more slow-paced and more intense and there are other cartoons that are like scene change, scene change, scene change, colours, everything changing, you know, like flashes. That can be quite, you know, addictive for children and it can get them quite, um, you know, intense around not wanting to watch anything but those really like fast scene things. So children, adults, we all have it. We all have these like – instant gratification things that we like to engage in. Another thing regarding exercise has got to do with the fact that it's going to raise, and and this was mentioned in a lot of blog articles and, you know, on these forums and on, on videos, that it's going to raise your cortisol levels in the morning and that's why you should avoid exercising in the morning because it raises your cortisol levels in the morning. I even saw videos online and articles saying that if cortisol is high in the morning, it may continue throughout the day. Cortisol should be at its highest in the morning. A a spike in cortisol in the morning is what helps set off a healthy circadian rhythm. I spoke about the circadian rhythm a couple of episodes ago. Exercise will increase cortisol and that is not a bad thing, okay? Exercise-induced cortisol is not a bad thing. High levels of cortisol chronically due to stress is, and I have, have a whole episode on stress and the effects of stress on the brain, I can't remember the number of the episode, but, and I speak about cortisol and all of that in it. Um, But this idea of cortisol being bad is ridiculous. Cortisol helps you um, stay focused, take action, um, act on something. It helps the fight or flight, but it also helps with performance. So it's so beneficial when it's used in the right manner when we're just living, you know, a balanced, healthy lifestyle. Cortisol is crucial in the mornings, it's what helps you sleep better because of that whole circadian rhythm. And if you get that good release in the morning, then it like tapers down, tapers down. And it's, you know, way lower at night when you shouldn't be having it. Um, another thing is that exercise-induced cortisol actually helps you lowering your cortisol levels below baseline overall. So the beauty about cortisol is that it's there when you need it and it spikes when you need it. It's there in the morning when you've got to be alert. And then, it, then you want it to have be dropped below baseline. If you're someone with chronic stress, then that's going to be sitting higher, chronically high all the time, which causes a lot of disease and causes a lot of issues with your sleep and your mental health. Exercise is one of the best ways to lower your cortisol below baseline after you exercise. You get the spike in cortisol when you exercise. The same goes for a sauna. And then after the fact, it drops below your baseline. You're a lot calmer, you're a lot you know, happier, your moods are better, and you sleep better. The exception to this is If you're someone who is absolutely thrashing your body, training like a fucking demon, never giving yourself a rest, then you might find that your cortisol levels are elevated higher than normal because your body is under stress without adequate recovery. But if you have a good balance of exercise, sleep and recovery days, then overall exercise is a great way to lower your cortisol below baseline when you don't need cortisol. Okay, so something that I do agree with is that excessive stimulation, excessive being the key word, stimulation should be limited in the morning, not completely removed but limited. Big tick for that one. So not being on your phone, big tick for that one. Totally agree with that. Um, But another thing that I don't like is it talks about – Within this dopamine detox, it actually gives examples of ways to raise your dopamine levels in this supposed detox. For example, direct sunlight. So it explains that part of this detox is to go out in the sun, get direct sunlight, chill, read a book. Direct sunlight in the morning is a great way to give you a healthy rise in dopamine. So that's just counterintuitive in that trend. You should get direct sunlight in the morning. It's a great way to spike your dopamine levels in a healthy way, but that's not detoxing you of dopamine. Another thing that I read is that the reason why you shouldn't be on your phones is because of the blue light. And that is not really accurate in the morning. So well, let's look at this blue light ID. It states that you shouldn't be using your phone for the first hour of the day because of the blue light that it emits. And it states that this blue light will spike your dopamine and then you're going to get a come down shortly after. Blue light is what the sun emits. It's a fucking wavelength, okay? So I think people think, oh my God, it's the phone, it's it's unhealthy, it's this and that. You shouldn't be using your phone first hour in the morning for, for – the whole instant gratification, spike drop, spike drop of dopamine for your attention for the rest of the day. There's many reasons why you shouldn't be using it for the first hour or two of the day. Completely agree. Nothing to do with blue light. That only comes into play in the evening. Blue light emits dopamine and dopamine helps you stay alert and awake. Blue light is phenomenal for your mood, for your attention. It's emitted by the sun and the sun is one of the best things you can do in the morning, early, first thing you wake up, direct sunlight. One of the best things you can do for your mood, for people with mood disorders, for depression, for focus, for attention. There's so much that comes out of the blue light that is emitted from the sun. And that's the same wavelength that's coming from your phone and your screens. Okay, so... It sets your circadian rhythm. It does everything. Blue light in the morning, great for your circadian rhythm. Low levels of blue light or just low levels of light in general at night is what's also going to help get your circadian rhythm nice and settled. I don't think it's beneficial to be avoiding blue light in the morning. I think that that's actually counterintuitive. People are supposed to feel awake in the morning. I don't agree with the trend that makes you eliminate all things that stimulate you in any way, shape or form because that is just not how humans operate. You are supposed to be at your greatest levels of alertness and stimulation in the morning. That is why your body releases and the highest amount of cortisol in the day is in the morning because your body knows best. And unless we're fucking with our systems – and, you know, screwing our sleep and doing all these addictive behaviors, that is when your body naturally will produce the highest level of cortisol because it needs you to be alert in the morning and that tapers as the day goes down. So this idea of thinking that stimulation is bad in the morning, I don't agree with because it goes against what your body needs. So getting in the sunlight, getting blue light, you know, feeling awake in the morning is due to cortisol, dopamine and blue light from the sun. Blue light suppresses the release of melatonin, which is the neurochemical that helps you fall asleep. But melatonin only starts to increase again in the evenings once the sun has set. So that is why it's recommended to lay off the devices and lay off these blue lights and all of that in the evening because blue light interferes, that wavelength in particular, interferes with the production or a higher level of production of melatonin, which is what causes the onset of sleepiness and helps you fall asleep. It's not some evil wavelength of light that should be avoided at all costs throughout the day. So this idea of avoiding the phone in the morning, 100%, but that's more for your attention and for those spikes in like pulling your attention all the time and and then making it harder for you to feel gratification on anything else because you just filled your morning with instant gratification. But it has nothing to do with blue light. Um, it's just it's just a short wavelength of light called blue light as opposed to a different wavelength of a red light. Now, it also states, and you might hear this, that this trend of avoiding or lowering blue light helps with SAD, which is seasonal affective disorder, which is a type of depression that is seasonal, as in when there's lower light or less daylight hours. But It's absolutely contrary to that because studies show that exposure to sunlight first thing in the morning, which is blue light, will aid in the symptoms of seasonal affective disorder and lower the rates of seasonal affective disorder as well. And if you look at studies around countries where there's, you know, months and months of a lot of darkness and months and months of a lot of lightness, there's a harsh contrast in the mood disorders and what's experienced when there's high sunlight lower levels of mood disorders and depression. People are, in general, happier. And then when it's really dark all the time, people report being, you know, stressed, sadder, seasonal affective disorder, all the above. So it's, there's a clear correlation between sunlight and mood and it being beneficial, and that is blue light. So kind of to summarise, I guess what I think the key takeaways from this trend are – They are the importance of avoiding instant gratification behaviours. I think that's crucial and I think that's something that seems to be quite well understood in this trend that at least what they're doing is low stimulation but I think what I would interpret low stimulation and how I would reframe that would be not doing any instant gratification-like behaviours because – Stimulation is – exercise is great. Being in the sunlight is stimulating. You're getting, you know, all of these things. So low stimulation, I wouldn't say that's what you need, but I agree that you need lower levels of instant gratification. So that includes your phone. Um, Coffee is an interesting one because it's recommended that you shouldn't have coffee to aid you to wake up. You should be allowing your body to wake itself up with the help of sunlight, of course, but that should be like a natural thing. And if you're using a stimulant to wake you up – if you're someone that needs it to wake up, then you should try and push out that coffee an hour or two in the day. Now, I was listening to an episode with Huberman Lab. Great fucking podcast. Listen to it if you're really into science. And he was actually talking about, I'll I'll find, I'll see if I can pull the episode for you guys and share it on the stories, but there's so many of them. But he talks about the fact that if you have coffee within the first hour of your day, it kind of plays around with your stimulation and and your um, circadian rhythm instead of going out into the sun and instead of doing those things that are going to wake you up naturally. And it might make it harder for you to start falling asleep later on in the day because you're not getting that natural waking up with cortisol dopamine. Um, But... The difference there is if you exercise in the mornings, then that kind of cancels out the negative effects of the caffeine first thing in the morning. But if you're not exercising in the morning, try and push that coffee out one hour after you wake up. That's kind of the theory behind it. Uh, but coffee in itself, I actually don't think is a bad thing. There's a lot of benefits that coffee have on your brain. There's a lot of studies that show like a strong association with how coffee can be really beneficial to stave off neurodegeneration and things like that, Parkinson's disease and all these things. So um, there's a, a time and a place for, I think, a lot of things that we think are bad. Um, another thing, another takeaway is that you don't need to detox of dopamine. That's, don't, that. You don't need to do that. It's also not possible to do that. So I don't even tell you, don't have to tell you not to do it, but you shouldn't be avoiding things that create a spike in dopamine, just instant gratification behaviors. Now, delayed gratification is one of the best things you can do for your dopamine. There was this mice model study um, about reward and it showed that wanting and waiting for a reward in as far as delayed gratification actually gives you the same like, you know, feeling of gratification, if not higher as far as dopamine is concerned, then getting these quick hits of dopamine all the time. And it's sustained and then you don't get that dip. And I know it's not done on human models, but mice and humans share like so much, like there's so much in behaviours in mice that then correlate to humans. So mice models are one of, one of the great ways of studying things like that. Now, if you want to know more about dopamine episode uh, in my podcast, go to episode 80, which is all about dopamine, addiction, motivation, reward, and how to stop feeling flat. That's what the episode is all about. So go check that one out. Now, lastly, I want to wrap it up with what my ideal morning would be. So to finish, I would like to explain what my ideal morning would be or what I recommend for an ideal morning. That kind of semi-aligns with this low dopamine morning trend but also does not. Wake up, obviously. Drink water. That helps start to wake you up. Hydration is so important for your brain, for brain activity, just for your body. Meditate. This is what I do. Wake up, drink some water, meditate. Ten minutes, whatever whatever feels good for you. Meditate. Then go outside straight away and start to move your body. Now, if you can go outside and get direct sunlight – great. If you can combine that with exercise, awesome. Fucking awesome. You feel so good. You get a good rush of energy. After the fact, you feel motivated to do more. You have these healthy levels of stimulation and dopamine within your system that you're willing to start your day and you're feeling good. You're not kind of sloppy. You've know, you got the sun, you've got all these things, the blue light, the cortisol, the dopamine in healthy levels. And- not being on your phone, I personally will wait roughly an hour before I have my first coffee uh, and that's that's purely because I just wake up so early and I have the meditation, this, that, I get ready and then go outside, sign, all of that. And then it really just takes about an hour before I end up at a cafe to have a coffee after I work out normally. Um, wait for as long as possible to check your social media. The only time I'm on my phone when I wake up is if I am putting on a meditation or if I've said that I'm meeting a friend within the first hour of waking and I'm texting them. But as far as social media, emails, all of that, I avoid it, avoid, avoid, avoid for at least the first hour of the day and then then it's just very, very scarce. I might go on social media to like post a story that I was with my friend and that's it but I won't be scrolling and then I won't actually get onto actually using my devices in social media and all of that until like past 9 a.m., in general. So we've got waking up, drinking water, meditating, getting outside in the sun and moving your body. If you can make that exercise outdoors, walk, jog, whatever, something on your balcony in your backyard, great. That's a really good way to set the tune for the day. Um, Avoid coffee for the first hour if you can, just so you are stimulating yourself naturally without a stimulant as such. Uh, And avoid being on your phone for the first hour or so as in like social media usage on your phone these are this is to me like the best way to start the day and then if you want if you some of that it's breakfast really early I normally wait a couple of hours before I eat I'm just not hungry in the morning so I wait a couple of hours and then I might have like a smoothie or something or a lol a croissant um but that's how I start my day. And I highly recommend that that's how you start your day. Try your very best to not get on the phone purely because this is instant gratification behaviors. Anything that's instant gratification behaviors is going to make you feel less inclined to do something or to take action on something later on in the day. Okay. So as far as this low dopamine um, detox trend, all of that, you're thinking instead of low dopamine, you're thinking low instant gratification mornings. That is the aim of it. That's what I would recommend based on the literature, based on what, what these studies are saying, based on the importance of blue light dopamine and cortisol in the mornings and why that's actually beneficial for you for morning versus in the evening Um Yeah, so if you have any questions around this episode, please jump onto the Facebook group and ask away and we can have a conversation started there. That would be amazing. Thank you so much for listening. I love doing episodes like this, really enjoy it. Um, And now we've got the listener question. Okay, the listener question. Hi, Alexis. Thank you so much for all the content you produce. It gives me life. My listener question is based on my relationship. I'm 22 and he's 21. We've been together for over two and a half years now and I have no doubt that he loves and cares for me. Otherwise, I know in myself I wouldn't be here with him. However, he has been struggling to come to terms with some sort of – sorry, he's been struggling to come to some sort of peace of mind with his sexuality. He is bi-curious and has not had the healthy experiences in his life to find out where he stands. And I think this is something that is lingering in the back of his head when he is out socializing, etc. without me. We've had conversations in the past saying that I'll be there to support him. However, my fear is getting hurt in this journey of his. I've suggested a polygamous option for a relationship, but it doesn't sit comfortably for either of us. I've even suggested a break, but he replied by describing me as home and would not want to break out because of this. I'm worried because in a few months we'll be parting ways and trying out long distance to continue pursuing our career aspirations and goals. We're both very proud that we can trial this journey of growth in our relationship. My fear is that he'll be in a social situation where his curiosity might take over, and although his intentions have never been to hurt me, I'll hurt anyway. The last thing I want is for him to repress himself and have regrets later in life, which will ultimately hurt me. Thank you for reading. Looking forward to hearing from you. Okay, firstly, you are extremely mature. Thank you so much for writing that and you seem to be such a mature and understanding and open person. So this sounds like a very, very healthy dynamic within that relationship. I think that's very cool. I think that you're facing something quite challenging here because, you know, obviously you know that there's something that he genuinely, it's like something that he needs to tap into to discover and you're worried that with him saying, no, 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 I don't want to have an open relationship and I don't want to have a break, then you're thinking, well, something's going to give here and is it going to be what he wants to do and explore or is it going to be the relationship? Um, and so that's a, fair, that's a fair thought to have. I guess the next point, if you're, if you're certain that you don't want to have a break despite the fact that he's like, I can't have a break, I can't, I can't, I can't and you're at peace with that and you're like, okay, fine, we definitely will stay together. I guess the next thing you should say to him is because you also don't want to be sitting at home freaking out that he's going to go off doing something. You know, th- this is his opportunity to explore, to do these things. You've spoken about it. You're open about it. This is something that you're both on the same page about, which is the number one most important thing in a relationship. So I guess what I would say, I mean, if I were you, I would push harder on, the, on it being open temporarily going by what that sounds like, just because it seems like this is something that it's just he really, really, really wants to explore. And he's so young, both of you are. And actually, age doesn't really matter because it could be at any point, but to have this awareness at that age is phenomenal. And it's probably a shame to then have this awareness and then not explore these things, yet instead suppress it. That's what I'm saying about the age thing. I guess if you're not going to go on a break and if you're not going to um, have an open relationship, then the only thing you can do from this point is to have a really, really heartfelt conversation with him and just say, the only thing I will request of you is your honesty because I can handle honesty. I can handle the truth. Don't ever protect me from the truth because it is not your job to protect me from your own actions. It is your job to be open about your own actions when we are in a relationship and when those actions affect me and the relationship. So I only ask you to be completely open and transparent because we're going to try and do this long distance thing. And of course, we're going to try and be, um, you know, we're not having an open relationship. We're being monogamous, but If something happens where that goes down the drain and you've, you know, found yourself in an encounter that you absolutely have to explore and you've gone and done that thing, I expect honesty and the truth because then it gives me a choice of what to do, you know, and hopefully you'll be in a situation where you don't – where if he does come to you and he's honest about something that happened, you won't be angry about it but you'll be more like, well, this is kind of what I saw coming and at least I've been told – at the first instance, instead of it being hidden from me, you know, because I think that from what you're saying, it looks like something that he absolutely has to explore based on this letter. And I feel like you also don't want to be living your life in limbo or, or with your head buried, you know, under a rock. So what I would say is like, you just have to be so honest. And if anything happens, I won't be angry, but you have to tell me and you have to give me the opportunity to make a decision because if you're not honest then you strip me of that decision making power and that's not fair this has to be an even an even relationship and I won't attack you but I need to know the truth and that's all you can ask of him if you're going to stay together that's all you can ask of him Uh, but once you have your distance you both of you will understand more what you want out of the relationship you'll get way more clarity being apart from each other my mum has this um, comment that she makes about relationships and she says, oh, look, I'm going to fucking butcher it because it's in Spanish, but it's roughly like distance in a relationship is like wind to a flame. It puts out the small flames and it makes the big flames bigger. So distance in a relationship can basically really help you um, or it could let you know that it wasn't meant to be. I hope that helped you in some way, shape or form. Thank you so much for sending in that question. Guys, that is all for today's episode. Love you all so much. Thank you for tuning in and I will speak to you on Friday. As always, remember, be kind to yourself, be kind to your brain. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.